0: Communicating risk is difficult at any time, but during a pandemic, communicating risk well can be what keeps the disease from spreading, as one public health official has put it, like wildfire. During the COVID-19 pandemic, experts, journalists, and elected officials have all been working to find the most effective way to communicate risk to the public. Helping understand their risks of infection, or of infecting others, can be the thing that gets them to follow mask mandates or other public health advisories. Effectively communicating risk in COVID-19 is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Dance and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film is away. We have two guests joining us today from the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge. Alexandra Freeman is the executive director of the center, a role she took up in 2016 after working for the BBC for 16 years, primarily as a producer and director for BBC Science. Her work has won numerous awards, including a BAFTA and the AAAS Kavli Gold Award for Science Journalism. Claudia Schneider is a postdoctoral research associate with the Center and the Cambridge Social Decision-Making Laboratory. At the Winton Center, she studies the communication of uncertainty about evidence to various stakeholders, particularly the unquantified, quote, quality of the underlying work, end quote. Alex and Claudia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you, love to be here.
2: Great to see you both.
0: Just to begin our conversation, could you describe how you think about risk in the work that you do?
3: It's a very subjective feeling, and a lot of risk managers sort of think about it as a probability or a number at least, you know, a likelihood of something happening and the impact of that thing happening. But to the rest of us risk is something that you feel you know how vulnerable you are to that particular event you know whether you're going to have to take time off work whether you've got caring responsibilities what your financial resources are all of these will uh, affect how risky you feel something is so really what we're trying to do when we communicate risk is to help somebody form that subjective feeling and if you're trying to communicate how you feel about something to somebody else it's really hard I mean it's like trying to communicate how you perceive a colour to somebody else so this is just a really tricky thing to do and it's got so many different facets.
2: Just even defining what what is that when you say it's a subjective feeling and the response of that is a, is and I like I like the analogy that you have with color and I thought that worked very well as as you were as you had written that up as well. Uh, I'm I'm curious about what do you hope to achieve with risk communication is the first part of the question, and the second part of the question is how do you study risk communication.
3: Okay, let me tackle the first bit and I'll let Claudia tackle the second. So um, it was interesting listening to your introduction because you talk about, you know, how important risk communication is to people, uh, you know, following public health mandates, that kind of thing. And really what we in the Winton Centre are trying to do is quite different from what a lot of public health communicators are trying to do or... Um, people making messages where they really want to change someone's behavior or at least change their beliefs Um, because what we're trying to do in the Winton Centre is very overtly to inform people but not to persuade them so Mm -hmm. we work on how best to communicate numbers in a way that helps people understand them and then form their own opinions about them. So we would never set out to try and encourage people to wear face masks, say. We just want to help people understand what the situation is so that they can make a decision in their own mind, in their own circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, And that might also help them make decisions that are actually more sensible for their own circumstances and more generalist as well, because What I've noticed, for instance, in the UK is that, you know, there are a lot of government guidelines, a lot of government regulations. And I hear people discussing, you know, oh, well, we're allowed six people in the room. And then, you know, so the seventh person has to be outside the door. But then as soon as that sixth person comes out, then the seventh person can come in. And you're like, you're just not you've not communicated the principle here. So people are making decisions that aren't necessarily the best in the circumstances because they're not understanding the whole underlying problem and the whole underlying potential range of solutions. So now over to Claudia to talk about how we study it.
1: Yeah, how do we study it? So um, we do qualitative and quantitative research to trying to get at it from from different angles and also because they both give different kinds of insights. Um, it obviously depends on the exact sort of domain and, and question that we're asking. You know, I guess Alex said risk is defined different, differently in sort of different domains and you would look at it in different ways depending on your exact research question. So for instance, early when the pandemic hit, we ran a range of quantitative surveys across different countries that looked at people's risk perception and the sort of, you know, predictors or like factors that are associated with that. And here, like, sort of, sort of how we conceptualized risk perception was that we came at it from the more cognitive but also the affective angle because it has these different components. So we had some measures in there where we asked people, you know, how worried are you about this um, to get this affective component? But then also questions like, how likely do you think it is that you will be affected or, like, get sick in the next six months? How likely do you think that, you know, family and friends um, will get sick from the virus? Because these different components, the sort of, you know, Severity, perceived likelihood, and affect, and they all play a role in shaping people's risk perception.
2: So, can you talk a little bit more about kind of how you did that? I mean, you know, this this idea of saying it's it's really easy to say, oh yeah, we served a, we surveyed a bunch of countries. Well, that you know, that, that, there are a lot of devil in the details. So, can you describe a little bit about the the process by which you did that study?
1: So, all of these were um, online samples. So, um, you know, people completing our surveys. Um, on their computers tablets and how we recruited them was um, i mean i believe three different ways um a little bit depending on the countries so first of all i should have said that we ran this um survey in 12 different countries yes um and for like the different countries we had uh, different um you know surveying platforms so we used um, prolific academic which is like a very well-known one in the sort of psychology field for um the uk and for the us we then gradually started using respondi which is another sort of serving company more for the other countries um in australia we used donata so we we use these different platforms to to get those national samples but then we also um You know, compared between the platforms. So, for instance, for the UK, um, we have samples that used Respondi and samples that used Prolific, and we often try to go sort of half half to you know, in case there were any kind of effects with regards to these um, sampling platforms. Now. We don't have sort of true probability samples for our different countries, but we had samples that were nationally representative on um, age and gender. We used interlocking quotas to, you know, get at least to a certain level of representativeness so that we don't just have any, you know, random online sample, but really try to um, improve our data quality and get to like the maximum amount of data quality that we could.
2: So can I ask you just a just a quick follow up before I, I turn this over to Rosemary? So, so with doing online surveys, this is an interesting question to me. Is, is are are there groups that are missed? You know, so I'm 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 trying to picture, you know, in the process of doing a study like this, you know, is it possible that maybe some of the most um, vulnerable populations are actually not being represented in studies where where you're relying on this kind of online survey methodology?
1: I would say absolutely, because Online already means someone has to have access to a computer, um, you know, and also be, be willing to participate, right? Because, like, this is research, so there, there's a consent form. And, you know, like, even just having people interested to be signed up on these platforms and then be interested once they get these sort of adverts to, like, you know, take our studies. So, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that's a general caveat with, like, a lot of the social science research. But, you know, given that we use the quotas for age and gender, You know, we're already covering a lot there because we don't just have, you know, I don't know, young males like 32, 35. But we do have, you know, from 18 all the way above 80 for men and women in these different countries. So, you know, we're trying to get there. But absolutely, you know, the most vulnerable we're probably not getting.
3: And I think we see that when demographic details that we're not quoting on. Um, some of our samples are pretty highly educated, um, you know, yeah. much much yeah. more highly educated than Always. the general population yeah. in that country. Yes. We occasionally uh quoted on an ethnic balance as well, but where we don't, we know that they're not ethnically representative of the populations. And some of the important factors that we're looking at are to do with trust and trust in institutions. Mm-hmm. And those have a real impact we see on things like risk perception and how much people trust information from different sources. And I very much suspect that our populations are not at all balanced on trust in institutions, because that's exactly the kind of thing that I would expect not to be balanced in the samples that we're getting through these kind of recruitment procedures.
0: That's actually what I wanted to ask about, was this issue, because you sort of framed the work Wilson Center is doing as um, as communicating, but not an attempt to persuade, right? Like, here is the information. Hopefully, you can find it useful to make choices in your life. But I wonder if if that kind of communication has gotten more difficult. It seems like there has been sort of, and it's been noted, like around the world, there is this sort of skepticism about science, whether it's related to vaccinations or climate change or public health interventions in various places. And I wonder if sort of the role of your center and figuring out how to communicate these things has just gotten more difficult or the work of your center has gotten more difficult or if you're thinking about how to sort of navigate that sort of situation
3: well that's a really interesting thing to bring up because i think there is a feeling that trust in science and trust in scientists has decreased but we ask these questions in our surveys all the time and we've not seen a decrease <laughs> in trust in science or scientists um, or medical experts uh, across the whole of 2020 in the UK, and we've been sampling every six weeks or so in the UK. We have seen changes in trust in government um, yeah. and and ability to deal with COVID. Um, but that general level of trust in scientific expertise has stayed pretty high. And I think that's true in quite a lot of countries. We mm-hmm. have seen a decline in willingness to get vaccinated, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Uh- And I don't know, you know, trust in expertise is very, is one of the factors that comes out as very important in people's decision to say they'd be willing to get vaccinated. And of course, we're only asking people theoretically in our surveys. Um, And that, I think, is a real interesting, concerning um, trend. Um, But it may be to do with um, people's feeling of the quality of the evidence underlying vaccines, because, um, and Claudia can talk about her work on that, um, looking at people's reactions to quality of evidence and perception of quality evidence. It seems to be very important in their sort of willingness to then sort of believe it and take action on it. Um, and certainly, you know, anecdotally, I hear a lot of people going, oh, well, you know, the vaccine's it's not been around long. We've not got that much evidence about it. I think I'll hang on and wait and see how it goes. So just as...
2: Quick question as a follow-up. The, the idea that was, there seems like there were some surprises. Not, I mean, I wasn't surprised to see that the, the level of support for science was relatively stable. Although the question is, is it a low? Le- is that a low level? I mean, is it that it, that it wasn't great to start and it just hasn't changed? I mean, no, that's no, a no. Qu- no, it's pretty. <laughs> it,
3: I mean, obviously, all these things we can only really look at relative. But it's not bumping along the bottom.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awful, and nobody's changing it. No, no, it was better than that. And and politicians and government didn't seem to fare as well in terms of your studies. I I, I would, was just curious. What was the most surprising result? When that that you when you were doing this analysis, that's kind of popped out if there was one, and and also, what kind of differences do you, did did were really remarkable as you look between countries or among countries?
1: Um, I'll start with the second one, um, differences that are remarkable or not. So, I mean, what we found in our um, first big comparison of uh, at that time, I think it was ten different countries, was that the. The predictors of risk perception at the time were actually quite similar in the different countries. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, the big ones that came up quite consistently was um, a personal experience with the virus at the time. So you know, did you know somebody who wasn't affected, infected, um, yourself, and so on? And then their sort of worldviews. So had they more of an individualistic worldview or more of a pro-social worldview? Um, So, you know, those who kind of believe that, you know, it's important to do things for the good of society and others kind of thinking about the vulnerable people, um, they showed a higher risk perception. And maybe because, you know, quite early on, it it was clear that this virus was affecting different, um, you know, parts of the populations in in different ways. And then also the sort of third big one was uh, sort of to the extent that people talk about the virus with uh, family and friends, so kind of like you know, interactions on the kind of social level, which is interesting because, you know, if we think that um, things like, you know, what we know about the virus, or the kind of, you know, more objective knowledge, like that maybe should have been the biggest driver of risk perception, but we actually found that it was more about these sort of socio-cultural aspects that had a bigger impact on people's perceptions, and that was across the different countries.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Alexandra Freeman and Claudia Schneider of the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge. Alex, so you come from a journalism background. Um, So I wonder what advice would you give to journalists who are trying to communicate this information about risk to their audience? What, What do you think should be guiding them as they try to sort of frame these stories in a way that are useful and serve the public good?
3: Oh, gosh, gosh, that's such a difficult question. Um, I I think the funny thing is, is that when I worked in the media, and I wouldn't have called myself a journalist, but I was, you know, making documentaries, I always had a story in my head. All my work was about trying to lead people through a story to understand a conclusion that I or somebody else had come to based on that information. And you know all the sorts of things you use in a documentary or the music or the filming it's all designed to help people on this journey and control their emotions and how they feel about things and actually what i have really come to realize working in the winton center is that there is an entirely different way of approaching the kind of information that people might need especially in a in a time like this and a much more neutral presentation, Um, not trying to help people see that something is big or small or worrying or not worrying, but just giving them the information in a way that allows them to make up their own minds about it. And maybe I'm just completely blind to the fact that journalists do this all the time. And as a documentary maker, I had a different um, kind of opinion on it. But I think there is an entirely different set of kind of ways of communicating of guidelines to follow when you're communicating in that really neutral way and mm-hmm. all you're trying to do is produce things that can be well understood and um can be seen as being trustworthy and you know these are sorts of things like including the uncertainties yes. um not worrying so much about keeping everything really short really clear make it really easy but instead, making it really trustworthy and really mm-hmm. balanced.
2: The, you mentioned I, I really like this this idea of kind of the trustworthy communication as being really the, the touchstone and the goal here. But it, it often seems like the uh, the communication of the uncertainty is really what's is what's lacking. That, that that there's almost a false sense of precision that that we don't trust people to to be able to be consumers with uncertainty. And how, how do you how do you respond to that
3: well you know we have been doing work on this because it's such a common thing that you hear that you know people can't just putting the uncertainty will undermine their trust it'll give them too much to be thinking about that people don't want uncertainty because it makes it harder for them to make decisions and it may be. you know, It's true that none of us want uncertainty. It'd be lovely if the world had no uncertainty in it, but that's just not the world we live in, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, it's we shouldn't be denying uncertainty that's there. I mean, I'm sh- sort of ethically and from a trustworthy perspective, we shouldn't be denying it. But also, further down the line, if you're very certain about something and then turn out to be very wrong about it, I'm sure that's going to undermine people's trust in you as a communicator or as a scientist much more than if you've been open all the way along. Um, So and I think that's a lesson that people are perhaps learning. Some people are learning for the first time in this pandemic where It's a world where we were so uncertain earlier in the year. We didn't know how the disease worked. We didn't know how fast it was going to spread. We didn't know how many cases there were now. We didn't even know how many deaths there'd been last week. You know, our uncertainty just spanned every possible dimension. And if you, you know, foolhardy journalists stepped out there and said things that were very certain, you were sure as hell gonna be wrong the next week. So I think people learned that lesson. And so the work that we've been doing in this, where we've been, um, you know, presenting people with precise numbers or precise looking numbers and numbers with a numerical range around them, so you know, saying it could be between X and Y. And then looking at people as trust, asking them to rate their trust in those numbers, their trust in the producers of those numbers, um, the amount of uncertainty they feel about it, all of those kinds of things. We've been finding that people are completely fine with accepting uncertainty. You know, they perceive it, so they'll say this is a bit more uncertain, but it doesn't undermine their trust in the producers of the information, and it only slightly undermines their trust in the number. And the more precise you can be, you know, if you're giving an actual numerical range, then, you know... That's not a problem at all. If you are more vague about your verbal uncertainty, you're saying, oh, there may be some uncertainty. Well, of course, that's a bit unsettling. But on the whole, people accept uncertainty. And we did that in all our surveys <laughs> across 10 countries. So,
0: I, I want to ask this question about contact. So I was reading this um, blog post that you wrote Um, the strange world of risk perception and communicating risks. And you make this point where about numbers only ever making sense in a context in which they're familiar. And I wonder how much like that familiarity with the context also plays into our willingness to accept uncertainty as well as sort of the figures.
3: So we did look at uncertainty uh, communication in a numerical form in a lot of different contexts. So they were things like, uh, you know, migration figures, unemployment figures, climate change numbers, COVID numbers. But all of those are relatively unfamiliar. You know, the language of numbers is not one that we all uh, sort of use day to day, except possibly in terms of money or possibly time. You know, those are the sorts of things where we're used to having a number and we know that you know, a hundred dollars is worth however much we feel it is in this context. So we have a sense of the context around money and time. Um, but those are probably the only cases where language is really familiar. And That's it's interesting because we were talking to some researchers who study uncertainty communication in financial um, situations. And I suspect that they have quite different results from us because it's a really familiar context to people. But the fact that we didn't find people were worried about the uncertainty, even in a kind of an unfamiliar numerical world, I think probably means people aren't worried about the uncertainty. But it could just mean that people completely ignore that bit of numbers in the middle of a sentence. Although they did score that there was uncertainty around it. So, you know, when asked how uncertain is this number, they were able to recognise that it was uncertainty.
2: Alex, I was going to say that you know some of us don't want to see uncertainty and variability disappear, or our jobs are gone. This is, this is this is job security for you know. So so let's let's not go let's not go to crazy land here, Alex.
3: I don't think you need to worry. Uncertainty is not disappearing. There's a lot of
2: job security here. Then okay, good. I'm glad to hear. It.
3: So I, I want to follow
2: up on on kind of acting in this uncertainty, and you know, and sort of there, there's there's the component of yes, you're communicating. Information and trying to educate and bring people, you know, have people kind of understand where this is. But then ultimately, there are there. You know, will this translate to action? And, and you know, and so I, I let me let me turn this over to Claudia and say you've, you've done some studies looking at uncertainty and how people are responding, perhaps. And can you can you talk a little bit more about that for with us?
1: Well, can I turn that question a little bit around and follow up on something that Alex said before when oh, she talked about the uncertainty and that it doesn't undermine trust and, you know, when we give them the numbers in the range? Okay. Um, that is true, however, and this is something that's due to my heart because that's what I study. That's my focus. Um, there is a component of... Of the quality of the underlying evidence. So, you know, you can give people a number and it can be a precise number or it can be a number with a range, a confidence interval. So, we do have that uncertainty in the sort of direct uncertainty sense. However, then there is the underlying sort of information, like what is that number based on, right? Like, this is based on like some RCTs or observational studies. You know, do experts agree on this or not? Do we have a lot of data that underlies this figure or is there like a lack of data? And we found that people really care and are really interested in knowing what the quality of the underlying evidence is, because that is an indicator of, you know, how much can I trust this information? You know, should I then, in case it's some, you know, behavioral advice, like, I don't know, wearing eye protection or like wearing face masks, should I follow that advice or not? And um, why it's important is that in our studies we found that people react to these different um, quality of evidence levels and we in our work looked at sort of high quality, low, unknown or just not giving them any information. And sort of what we see is that when people are presented explicitly with some kind of information that we tell them, you know, this is high underlying quality, that their sort of levels, how they you know rate that information in terms of trustworthiness, or you know how effective they feel that certain intervention is, or you know how much they would make decisions based on that, is actually on the same level compared to groups that weren't presented with any quality of evidence information at all. Now, what does that mean? In practical sense, it could mean that what if we communicate you know information that might not be the highest quality of underlying evidence, and we just don't talk about that quality indicator. Then, you know, it could be that the people are maybe naturally kind of, you know, assuming that the quality is, you know, fairly high or like good enough, while it might actually not be. And this matters because we see that people react very strongly to low quality of evidence that definitely changes their perceptions and and their decision making. Therefore, we think it's really important to, you know, have not just a number, and the direct sort of uncertainty, but also think about how to communicate this quality of evidence.
2: Yeah, that's, yeah. Everything is so easy in this game, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's easy to talk about quality yeah, yeah, and risk and how you respond. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess as, as we're nearing the, the close of, of our, our episode, I'm, I'm curious if, if there's, there's sort of one takeaway message you might give us. You know, For people that, are, that think about, about communicating information, one sort of, if, if there's one thing that you would say, make sure you worry about this, if you're talking about risk and
3: evidence? Okay, so the one thing I would say, and it's quite, it's not any of the things that I've written about before, is if you only care about how many people read your article or quickly act on your information, it's really easy to get the feedback on how well you have done. And so that's an easy thing to aim for. But if when you think in your heart of hearts that what you're trying to do is to inform people, then I would say, think about how you can tell whether you're doing a good job or not. And then I think once you've reflected on that, I think it brings to mind quite a lot of issues. And so I would say, think about what you're trying to achieve and then think whether you are measuring the right things to know whether you're achieving it.
1: Yeah, sort of similar. But I also think that just thinking about and investigating what the kind of information that you put out, you know, what that does to people's reactions and like perceptions. How do they take this information so that it's not just, oh, you know, I present this in this kind of way with this kind of graph, but really thinking about, you know, what effects could this have, such as, for instance, with, you know, the quality of evidence insights. Because if we don't think about that, we might communicate in a way that creates biases and is actually, you know, not trustworthy or Persuade them in some kind of way and then we might not even be aware like be aware of those pitfalls so i think really really thinking through what am i communicating but as alex said also like how does that you know end up at the receivers end, and how do they perceive that information
2: great great points what a fun conversation yeah it's just great a, just a delight
1: thank you so much for being here today
3: pleasure ah, yeah absolutely. Thank,
0: thank you Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.